Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 51 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Episode 51. Seems like it goes by quick, doesn't it? Time flies when I'm with you, baby. Oh, please. <laughs> okay, enough of the shit. So what are we going to talk about today? That's nice, I've got to put an explicit tag on this one now. All the way from Texas, our guest today is Lyle Blackburn, who's a musician, cryptid researcher, author, and has featured on many TV shows about the Falk monster and other related cryptids. He's a well-known and well-respected researcher, and it's a real pleasure to have him here with us on the show today to speak about his new book, Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster. Please welcome to the show, Lyle Blackburn. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. No, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for coming along. Uh, just in case some of our listeners have been hiding out in a forest somewhere, can you give us a quick rundown on your past books and the films that you've been involved in? Uh, sure, yeah. The uh, summary of that would be uh, my first book was The Beast of Boggy Creek, which was released in 2012. And uh, I had been researching, sort of backseat research, encrypted and so forth, and I just had the desire to write a book about a particular case in southern Arkansas here in the United States that had been made famous by an old movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek. And it was essentially sightings of kind of a southern Sasquatch-like creature. And I'd always wondered what was true about it. It was based on a true story and things like that. So that that just became my first book. And quickly thereafter, some of these uh, new shows on television uh, started calling and were covering topics like that. And I was on uh, a show called Monsters and Mysteries in America, um, I did a segment of Finding Bigfoot and things like that. So suddenly I was you know, on TV, which I thought, hey, this is great, you know, and certainly exposure for the book. And the book was well received. So I thought, you know, let me continue with that. And so I followed that up with a book called The uh, Lizard Man, The True Story of the Bishopville Monster, which was about sort of a creature from the Black Lagoon-esque kind of a creature in the southern United States. And uh, I did a book called Beyond Boggy Creek in Search of the Southern Sasquatch. And that kind of was a more broad look at the history of Sasquatch sightings in the deep south of the U.S. And then uh, I did a book for a magazine I write for called Rue Morgue, which is a horror magazine. But uh, And then here we are at my latest book, uh, Momo, The Strange Story of the Missouri Monster, which I, I kind of wanted to cover in Beyond Boggy Creek, but the story was much bigger um, than you know would fit in the book, so it kind of became its own standalone. And then in combination with this, I've been working with a film company out of Ohio called Small Town Monsters, who's done uh, a number of documentaries um, in the style of like my books, where you investigate kind of a small town case and the history and the modern sightings of these creatures. They covered Boggy Creek Monster, and so I was involved in that. It was a great collaboration, so we continued. And I narrate; I'm the narrator of most of their films, and then I sometimes co-write or co-produce and so forth. So that's been a separate thing. And occasionally, I appear on various television shows as you know, making comments on on these type of cases. So that's pretty much uh, kind of 
over the last decade just really ramped up to where, you know, I mean, this is what I do full time. I've been a writer and a musician all my life. So this makes it a lot of fun and it's, you know, great fun researching and, and fun to, uh, to to release the books. So the Boggy Creek story was really what got you interested, I guess, in this field. Out of interest, how old were you when you watched that film for the first time? I was pretty young, probably six or maybe eight Wow. I'm guessing. I was just about to say that I watched it when I was about eight. And it just shows the differences between us both. Because when I watched it, it scared the shit out of me. And I had I had <laughs> nightmares for months <laughs> about we, this show. We just recently watched it with Bryce, didn't we? We did, yeah. Oh, sorry, Bryce is my son. But yeah, we just recently watched it. So yeah, so... Again. <laughs> so how did it affect you as, as a young lad? I mean, obviously it sparked your interest, but did it frighten you in any way or what drove you to say this, you know, I really need to look at this? <laughs> yeah, it's a strange thing. I mean, I, I was, you know, maybe maybe I was eight. It's hard to tell because the thing, it was released in 72, but it ran, uh, it did a, quite a big run in drive-in theaters and cinemas and you know, matinees, and then it was on TV. So it ran for a long time in the 70s because there's no way I could have seen it in 72, mm. you know. Uh, whenever I saw it, I was already into Bigfoot, the Yeti, and Loch Ness Monster. I remember and I had gotten some books at school that, you know, featured those. And I was always into horror movies and monsters and, you know, monster movies and stuff. But when it, when it came to the cryptids, I was like, oh, this is really creepy because, you know, imagine just seeing like a big ape in the woods or the Yeti or, or something like that. So where I lived in Texas, all that was so far away. I mean, the Yeti, you know, the Himalayas and mm. uh, Bigfoot, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, Loch Ness Monster, Scotland. Um, and then when I saw The Legend of Boggy Creek, it was like, whoa, you know, I, this is like three hours from where I live. And I'd grown up hunting with my father. And, you know, I'd seen all these real creepy old small towns and you know, we hunted out in backwoods. And so I was familiar with the terrain and the places like Falk, Arkansas, where this, this uh, case occurred. And so it, it kind of was just everything I was familiar with, everything I liked, and it was something that was close to home. So the movie just somehow fascinated me, just the, the way the movie was presented, the narration and the story and the fact that it was this, you know, unexplainable, scary creature but at the same time, it did scare me. I mean, I was scared and, you know, my dad used to jump out for years after that. Boggy Creek Monster, my mom, you know, <laughs> she's proud of her son for writing a book, but she it, it's a total nightmare for her. She doesn't like horror movies. I don't even know how they, how my dad talked her into going to it, but, <laughs> you know, and it was at a drive-ins where we saw it. My husband has never had the pleasure of a drive-in theater before he never been so they are really creepy places when you're watching some sort of horror movie especially one that has to do with you know the outdoors and yeah real creepy they are yeah it was a perfect setting for that and it just you know the stars aligned and I, I just loved the movie from there on and then as an adult I mostly played in bands I was a musician you know for years and years and even on tour I would sit in the bus and read Bigfoot books and stuff. And then I just sort of got this adult curiosity to go back and look at the legend of Boggy Creek and see what, you know, what were the true reports and what it was based on. And that's kind of just what happened. And I just literally 
explored the case for my own interest. So how much of the movie was sensationalized then? Because I know that in the movie, didn't it attack animals or something? Well, I mean, the movie is effective in the way it rolls out the sequences and portrays the, the creature and all this stuff. But I found that everything in there was based on an actual report. And, right. you know, the animals that had disappeared were, those were, you know, ranchers out there that said, I don't know what took this, you know, I can't explain it. Hogs were picked up and carried off and, um, you know, just the sightings and the attacks and, you know, most of that stuff was all in the newspapers. And, uh, you know, you can't say for sure what the people saw or if those animals were killed by a creature. But at the bottom line is that those people reported that stuff and it was not just a made up story. So the movie just basically is a documentary, which is a, effective because it it you know makes it into a horror movie and, and just the pacing is perfect so mm. did you learn anything that wasn't included in that movie and we're not going to spend the whole of this by the way talking about that because we're going to go on to your new book but i just wonder if there's anything that you found doing your research that wasn't included oh yeah i mean i i found many more reports and you know more sig- significantly that the sightings of the creature had gone back much further than what was portrayed in the in the movie mm. um and then the fact that after the 70s, you know, people kind of forgot about it or what have you, unless you were just really into Bigfoot. And uh, there had been sightings ever since. So, you know, I was, I thought I was mostly writing a historical book, but it turned out it was very much a, a continuing story and something that, you know, had a lot more sightings and a lot more credibility than simply a, a movie that captured a certain portion of that. So there are reports of other Sasquatch around the same area. Why do you think that they never got the same type of coverage as the Falk Monster did? Well, I think that was just, I don't know, luck and, you know, what the reporters wanted to cover at the time. You know, some of that media coverage is just, it explodes quickly and it's covered and people get an interest in it. So it's followed up. You know, there's there's been plenty of other similar sightings and stuff in the general region, which would include Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma. But that particular case just captured some, you know, some headlines and then got picked up by the Associated Press and was spread in other newspapers. And so then, of course, with the movie, I mean, that, you know, that's why it's so famous is once that got picked up and was so successful, because it was it was like one of the top 10 grossing movies of that year. Um, and, you know, it's just an independent film. So that just elevated the fame of this creature far beyond what most of them get. You know, if they get reported in the paper, sometimes that's luck. And I don't know, everything aligned for it. Yeah. And then, of course, I suppose you've got the people who go, oh, you're just saying that because you just saw the movie. You're, you know, you're making it up or whatever, trying to ride on the coattails. So the initial one would probably get more attention. Yeah, when the stories first hit, you know, they, there was no doubt those people saw something, what have you, and it kind of opened up the doors because then a lot of old timers came forward and said, yeah, we've seen we've seen this down here for years. We just didn't run to the newspaper. So there's always mm. reports going on or sightings at least. Um, and they don't, you know, nobody's running to the newspaper every time. We spoke to Andy McGrath. I think you've spoken to to Andy as well, haven't you? Yeah, I know. Andy, yeah. yeah, we had him on our show a little while ago. 
And he actually said that in a lot of the places, especially the, the Nessie stuff that he's been looking into, a lot of the locals there will play stuff down because they don't want people in doing the research. They don't want to create the, you know, the tourism and all that sort of stuff. They'd rather just keep it quiet and, you know, have their nice little sleepy towns and, and all that sort of stuff. So I kind of get it in a way, as you said, that the, the older people wouldn't go necessarily run into the papers because they wouldn't want the, the tour buses arriving. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, some of the people people are very reluctant to to speak about that stuff so sometimes that again that's just the luck of the media the reason it got out is because somebody was allegedly attacked and went to the hospital so they couldn't you know couldn't downplay it from there and you know otherwise had the person not gone to the hospital this never would have you know made the newspapers probably well we're going to move on to the missouri monster now momo as it's called you're a boots on the ground researcher you're you're certainly not an armchair dweller from what i've read about you so can you tell us about the process for investigating this story right well you know and momo was another one that was made famous right around the same time as the falc monster um it made a lot of news in 1972 kind of one year after the Boggy Creek case hit the news. And it was one that I had read about in books, you know, over the years. And one that, you know, now there's a lot of blogs. And if you see a a map of cryptids in the U.S., it's always, Momo is always represented in Missouri. And Momo is short for the abbreviation for Missouri, M-O, in monster. So Momo is the name of this particular creature. And so as I am able to to research these, there's like always my favorites. I'm like, okay, now I want to go and, and dig up everything on Momo and find out what was, you know, true. How many sightings were there? Were there sightings that continued after the newspaper stopped? And at this point, I collect all information that's been written on it, uh, dig up old magazines, all the newspapers, and usually to get the newspapers, uh, especially in this case, I had to go up to this little town in Missouri. I went to the library, who thankfully had archives of all the original newspaper articles and I you know scanned those and so then I build sort of the story from the journal journalism point and then I you know try to find the original witnesses or people who were there at the time and you know I was able to uh, interview you know one of the most famous witnesses Doris Harrison that's had the initial sighting that got in the newspaper so um, and then, you know, just going to these places, it's hard to write a book or convey the atmosphere of what the terrain and everything looks like if you don't go there. So, you know, I, I was spent some time up there um, going to the sites where the creature has seen, been seen and all that. And of course, this is so many years later, obviously things have changed, mm. but I could get a good sense of the small town. And so my, my books always kind of weave this through the narrative of of a kind of a discovery like, Hey, let's go on this journey. Let's figure out all this. Let's tell the story of Momo and, you know, what is there to be seen now? And, you know, what is this area like where it was seen? So that's, that's kind of my research. And then I just have connections and I did some library presentations in Missouri, which kind of got me uh, in conversation with some other people who had strange sightings, you know, up there over the years. So that kind of helps to, you know, examine the whole case by interviewing people who have, have modern encounters. 
So did you find that they were quite forthcoming when you found these people and asked them about the case? Uh, I find that most modern witnesses don't have a problem. Some of the ones that have had some of these sightings that have become classic, they've been asked about it so much or they went through so much ridicule way back in the day that sometimes they don't, they're not thrilled to talk about it. Um, I was lucky that Doris Harrison spoke to me because she had been ridiculed by everyone and it was all in the newspapers and her whole whole family was involved. And you can tell that she's sort of defending herself. She's like, I saw what I saw, you know, I still stand by it today sort of a thing. So some of the witnesses are happy to share. Some of them aren't so much. You just kind of have to assure them that you're writing a a favorable book. I'm not judging what, what was going on. I'm just a journalist reporting the facts, you know. And what was Doris Harrison's experience? The family, like I said, was the most pivotal incident, and that that occurred on uh, July 11th, 1972. And that day, her two brothers, uh, Terry and Wally, were playing out in the backyard of their home, which um, was at the edge of this little town called Louisiana in Missouri, and uh, backed up to this rugged area called Marsoff Hill. And the boys were playing, and when they looked up, they saw what they described as an upright hair covered creature that was holding either like a baby or perhaps a dead dog and it had blood on it. And it had a big pumpkin sized head and it had hair that hung in front of its face. And the boys obviously, you know, were extremely frightened and screamed and started running towards the house. Well, Doris uh, was in the bathroom or something and she could see right out the window. And as soon as she looked out there, she also saw this thing uh, standing out there and she was older. She was uh, 14 or 15 at the time. And so, you know, obviously she, she's concerned, you know, seeing this thing standing there and her brothers came running in and, you know, they locked the door and, uh, they called her mom and, you know, said there's some some kind of a monster standing out in the backyard. And uh, the mom summoned the father and Edgar Harrison came home and uh, within 30 or 40 minutes. And the kids obviously were frightened and seen something. So he kind of looked into it and found evidence where the thing had been standing around, but it was long gone by that time. So somehow a reporter got news of that and it, uh, quickly made headlines, which um, got this whole Momo case rolling. So, I mean, what a thing to see. So it wasn't just like a normal Bigfoot type sighting. I mean, this thing had blood on it as well. Not only to see something so big and, and so out of character for what they were expecting to see in the woods that day, but this thing's got blood on it as well. Did they find any animals that had been hurt or anything like that that might attribute this this blood? Yeah, in, in the subsequent days... Um, their father, Edgar Harrison, was, you know, trying to figure out just what was going on and try to protect his family and to kind of vindicate his children who, you know, as soon as it gets in the newspapers, people start ha 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 and, and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, he found evidence uh, up on Mars off Hill where some dead dogs had been buried and dug up or um, and then later people came forward and said, hey, my dog went missing around that time. So, you know, there was based just speculation that this thing, if it was a creature or whatever it was, you know, was de- definitely carrying a dog. And, you know, there's no doubt that the Harrison kids saw it. I mean, this was daylight, you know, this wasn't a shadowy, you know, brief road crossing. I mean, this thing was standing in their backyard in full daylight. So there was no doubt about it that it was something physical standing there that 
you know, appeared to somewhat like a Bigfoot, but like you say, it was, it was definitely a little bit creepier. Was there any other physical evidence that was found hair or footprints or anything like that ever found? Yeah, there was, uh, you know, Edgar Harrison, when he looked around, he saw what he thought could be vague footprints um, and even some hair that he thought perhaps might have come off the creature. Um, and then in the days to follow, once it got in the newspaper and other sightings occurred and all kinds of just kind of a frenzy was going on in the little town, you know, other people came forward and said that hey, we found footprints um, in our, well, I want to say backyard. A lot of it was like on their farms or, you know, it's a rural area. So they found footprints and, you know, those, those things kind of bolstered the whole frenzy, obviously that people were finding physical evidence, but only one of those was cast, like they made a cast of it. The rest of them, you know, only exist in maybe a drawing or just mentions that people found footprints. So it hit the headlines in 1972. And initially those reports were made by, to all intents and purposes, children. Do you think that maybe there was, we would say here in the UK, like a Mickey-taking type of perspective? Did you see a movement from that kind of attitude to the story to one that was a little bit more serious after more reports came in and when more traction was made? Well, I think the, you know, the vibe of the newspaper was kind of always a little bit tongue in cheek, you know, monster scene again. And, you know, but nothing was found, you know, no, no picture, no evidence. That was always that kind of thing, but they would still report what went on. I mean, developed in the case. And I, back then they, they did just sort of report it. So, you know, people could judge for themselves whether the Harrison kids, whether they thought the Harrison kids saw it or not. And they would just kind of say, this is what the kids saw or said they saw. So it never really changed. The media didn't like, they were just kind of neutral, I guess, was was the vibe. Not like today when you just whip out your phone and start recording. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it adds to the mystery because, you know, there was, you don't have the, access to cameras like we would now if a cell phone i mean the kid who knows the kids could have even taken a picture and that's what people don't realize like you know these sightings are brief they're frightening you know if you saw that in your backyard your first thought you know is not oh i'm gonna take a picture it's like those kids just started (laughs) scream and run and that's that was what was going on and then you know they'd turn around and the thing would be gone so Mm. thankfully yeah you called it a rugged area i think you said marzoff hill was it right Mm -hmm. yeah missouri is sometimes called the cave state do you think that i I don't know whether there's caves in that area as i say you you termed it rugged do you think that if there are caves in that area that that could have been somewhere that the uh, missouri monster dwelled Uh, well certainly so um yeah that's that's one of the features of of Missouri in Southern Missouri is a place what's known as the Ozarks. And that's a place with even a longer and history of sightings of these Bigfoot like creatures up there where the little town of Louisiana is it's right along the Mississippi river. It's kind of a mishmash of, of woodlands and farms and rolling hills. And there are caves in and out of there. So that would kind of explain that if something is living up there, it would have a place to conceal itself. Um, and there's, there's so many caves up there and small ones that they're not even all documented. Really? Famous ones, but then, you know, they're just hidden out in the woods. I don't know. I don't think there's any caves on Mars off Hill in particular, but um, if you kind of just 
widen the scope, there certainly are, are places where crafty creatures could conceal themselves if they did indeed live up there or traveling through or what have you. Kentucky is another place where there's Bigfoot sightings and you know there's a lot of caves there, so perhaps these creatures use them. Also, along with some of these sightings, I know there were other things that occurred, like lights in the sky. Yeah, that's that's one thing that really makes this case strange and exciting is a few days after uh, the Harrisons had their encounter with the creature, on July 14th, the Harrisons were having a prayer meeting over at their house. Um, some people from their church, they came over every week or whatever. And uh, as that was kind of breaking up and everybody was kind of heading out, they were outside. There was about a dozen of them talking before they left and suddenly they looked up and saw several what they call balls of light move from east to west um over the trees and sort of looked like they had gone down in the the nearby vicinity Uh, one of the lights was white and one was green following that they heard this loud growling sort of sound and this metallic clanging and it got louder and louder and it was so loud that miss harrison grabbed the kids and ran out of the house and told Edgar to get in the car and get out of there. I mean, she wow. just about had enough. And so they started driving down the street, and already there was a crowd of like 30 people coming up towards Mars Off Hill because they could all hear this noise. And I guess some of it had seen those strange lights. And Miss Harrison just leaned out the car or something and, and yelled, they're coming, and everybody just started running so, I mean, it was like a scene out of a movie. And, you know, this, again, was being picked up by the papers. And then, you know, other uh, local citizens would call into the sheriff's office and say, hey, you know, we, we see, we're reading this in the paper. The same night as the Harrison's kids saw that, we heard some terrible growling noise of some animal we can't identify. Or people saw uh, hair-covered figures running across the road. And so it, it built a lot of steam. Wow, so multiple um, figures. Well, not two at the same time, but other people oh, right, okay. had, yeah, had said they had seen it, possibly seen it too. So within you know a couple of weeks, there had just been a lot of sightings, and the police uh, chief organized a posse of twenty men who went up on Mars Off Hill, searching around to see if they could find the creature. Or you know, I don't think they believed it was a creature. They just thought something was going on, whether it was a prank or a bear or mm. whatever. You know, they they kind of dismissed it, but it was of enough concern that they organized a posse and went up there and and then and then towards later on there were some other sightings of what people described as lights that moved with purpose almost like a ufo sighting or what have you and this brought in a lot of ufo researchers who initially researched the case there wasn't a lot of bigfoot researchers back then so a lot of this was documented by thankfully by ufo researchers who kind of we're looking at it as if Momo was perhaps an extraterrestrial. And that idea still carries forward in some people's thinking today when it comes to Bigfoot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a certain faction of people who theorize that the creatures could be extraterrestrials or dropped off by crafts and, you know, to run amok in our woods. I don't know. There was There's hardly any cases where people claim they saw a creature get off of a craft but there is certainly a lot of coincidental incidents when people have seen ufos or strange lights in the sky while at the same time people are reporting bigfoot sightings so whether there's a connection it's hard to say but there's certainly 
cases, and especially up in that area of the U.S. where you find these these types of high strangeness coexisting. wonder if that's where uh, Chewbacca came from in the Star Wars movies, because it was not that long after that those movies came out. Well, you know, I kind of looked into the whole Chewbacca thing because the guy who painted the original Legend of Boggy Creek movie poster, that kind of classic image of the creature coming out of the silhouette from the swamp, that's Ralph McQuarrie, who later drew all the characters for George Lucas. So all the all the designs of what we know as Darth Vader and C-3PO and Chewbacca had been uh, conceptualized by Ralph McQuarrie. Just so you know, my husband is sitting here laughing at me. When she mentioned <laughs> Chewbacca. <laughs> laughing at me. And, and there you go. Take that. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I, go I ahead. I stand corrected. <laughs> I asked McQuarrie if in any way the Falcon Monster had influenced the look of Chewbacca, and he said no. He said George Lucas had a specific idea, and I, I do believe it was – don't quote me on this. I think it was somehow based on George's dog or something. It was – but, I mean, cer- certainly Chewbacca is like a space Bigfoot, so Isn't come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did the UFO researchers come up with any explanation for the lights afterwards? Was there any plane activity in the area or anything that could answer the question of what those lights were? No, in, in fact, they, they didn't come up with any reasonable ec- explanation. Um, and I think they, they kind of stuck to their theory that, you know, this creature was of extraterrestrial origin and that the true case here was that there were crafts flying around in that vicinity for whatever reason. Um, the, the good thing that they did, though, is when they came to town, they would be interviewed by reporters and such. And this brought forth even more sightings, um, which were in a larger area, like even 20 miles south of of where Momo was first seen by the Harrisons. There were sightings of a hairy ape-like creature that crossed this river and so as these researchers sort of you know brought attention to the case by continually asking questions and doing news interviews it made some corroborating sort of reports that go on record is to show that it wasn't just in that little town uh, this was something that was going on in a much larger area and I know that you mentioned the disembodied voices, metallic voices was it you mentioned about uh yeah it was some other weird stuff that were that was reported as people were in the area, you know, researching, I guess. I mean, a lot of people kind of used the Harrison's home as a, as a base to where they would sit out there or they would go into the woods. And a few people reported hearing what they believed were voices of unknown origin that were speaking and they would hear them from the, from a cluster of trees and they would go over there and look in the trees and they would find nothing. So that just another level of weirdness, you know, how do you explain disembodied voices? I guess it was, they were speaking English, which was weird, but yeah, just just more that kind of piled onto the high strangeness of the whole case. We were speaking to Paul Sinclair a couple of weeks ago, and he is doing investigations into animal mutilations here in the UK. And one of the things that he's found recently is that there are more and more reports of these same sort of metallic voices is how he described it as well. So I don't know if you're familiar with this work, but it's interesting how you have these people in the 70s describing these metallic voices, and he's doing exactly the same. Different parts of the world, strange lights being seen, and then these metallic voices being heard. And when they go and investigate, again, it's around fields areas where they've got maybe high crops, and they'll go running through the crops to try and find the source of these noises. 
and there's nothing there. And again, that's witnessed by several people. So it's interesting how the stories kind of cross and, and overlap. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think a lot of times the, the more you look into these cases, the more you can find associated weird things. I mean, there's just weird things that go on in the world. And the more you delve into a case like this, the more you almost find, you know, hard to explain what all that is, but there's, there's definitely something that is going on um, that, that is, that is unexplainable. What would you say made these witnesses that you spoke to and actually at the site, what would you say made them credible? Um, I think that in this case, the chief of police vouched enough for them and, and believed them to be credible enough to say that they had seen something again, mm. maybe perhaps not a monster, but I mean, they were certainly not making it up. And and the police chief would not organize a posse if, you know, based on one sighting of somebody, just some crackpot report. Um, there was enough people in that town that said, look, I saw this thing and I saw it either in daylight or I saw it close enough to where they were credible witnesses, you know, and a lot of them didn't just say, you know, I saw the monster. They'd say, you know, maybe perhaps it was a big bear. I don't know, but they they were honest about it. The thing is, is there's no large bears that live up there or could live up there. There's, there's some small like honey bears or something, but that doesn't, you know, you don't see one of those and think it's a seven foot tall bipedal creature. Yeah. So, you know, th that's all you can do as far as the credibility. Now, if it's a modern witness and somebody I can interview myself, you know, that maybe has a, had a sighting in Missouri, you know, in the last 20 years or whatever, you know, I can judge then the cred credibility of the person based on that. I've interviewed a lot of people at least and can hopefully uh, distinguish between those that are making stuff up or lying or, ho or crazy that, uh, as opposed to credible people. So I think, you know, this case, like most others, there's people who saw something. Of all of the things that you found out when you were researching this book, what would you say shocked you the most? The one that I go back to that kind of really I can't explain is there was a sighting a year before the Harrison sighting and one that didn't make the newspapers, but there was two women who were driving south towards St. Louis and they we're just north of this little town called Louisiana, uh, the Louisiana town where Momo was seen. And they decided to pull off at this rest stop, kind of a picnic area. And we're having lunch when a thing fitting the description of Momo came out of the woods and frightened them so much that they had to run and jump into their cars. And it, it came up very close to the car and peered in. And it wasn't until they honked the horn that it like run off back into the woods. These ladies went and reported this to the uh, state patrol when they got back to St. Louis. And it was something that the news didn't really find out about during the, the sightings but this was something that would preceded any knowledge of momo preceded the news coverage and these women both saw it from their car in daylight standing outside their car so of course in any of these people say oh it's just some kids in a suit you know well you've got to have a darn convincing looking suit to fool <laughs> yeah. adult witnesses during the daylight hours because they didn't say you know, they reported it as some kind of an animal. They were like, it was, you know, wasn't a person. This was an animal. They didn't, I don't even know if they reported it in terms of Bigfoot because Bigfoot wasn't something that people immediately thought of way back in the early 70s. And uh, so to me, that's like, well, how do you explain what these ladies saw? If That's not, that's certainly not kids in a crummy costume. That That's really weird. And that 
it had occurred off the record before the Harrisons ever saw anything. So, And the proximity, you said it, it was right near there as well. It's, it's almost a stone's throw. The Harrison home is, is torn down now, but uh, Doris told me right where the home was, and I went there and looked at that, and then I went up on that Highway 79, and I found where that old picnic area was. It's gone now. There's no picnic tables or anything, but I found it. As the crow flies, as they say, it is not far at all. From, from the Harrison's home. So I read a quote from you that said, I tried to keep a good balance between open-mindedness and logical skepticism. I love that term, logical skepticism. Why do you think there are so many people out there who treat the subject with like a rigid dogmatic bent rather than applying logical skepticism? Uh, I don't know. People, to me, have an agenda to prove something, I guess. I find the stories interesting from a lot of angles. And it's not always about an agenda for me to prove these things or not, because he really can't anyways. I could say that you know, Momo is, is real or whatever, but I got no proof. So I, I think these stories are fascinating from a cultural standpoint. They're fascinating from a standpoint of people seeing monsters, you know, things in the woods. They're scary stories. They're spooky. They're exciting and sensational so I never have an agenda to to try to sell somebody on the belief in these. And so I can understand you got to look at it from other people's point of view. You know, they're certainly going to be skeptical because there is no proof mm. that I mean, it's not real or it's real. It's just that it can't be proven. So, you know, for me, that's why I keep that balance. And I think it makes a more engaging read to a wider audience when you let the reader, I just present the facts and I I weave the story into an interesting narrative, but I you know, give people credit. They can make up their mind. I want to keep a, a neutral a neutral uh, view of it and not try to persuade them one way or another. And we can all just sort of analyze the theories and the facts and the reports and say, well, to me, definitely seems like people saw some. Did the sightings die down or are they still occasionally seen today? Following the... Uh, the rash of sightings, which was pretty much the duration of the summer of 1972, uh, they did drop off. Um, the news kind of moves on and, and that sort of thing. But I found other ones that had not been covered in the news, other ones that uh, really weren't on the record or stuff that had been reported years later via the Internet, you know, with an outlet to report it that, you know, at least suggested that whatever this thing was, was still in the area, at least for about two years. And I interviewed a woman who said her grandfather had a pretty good sighting of a creature that fit the description of Momo in about 1974. But beyond that, it, in that specific area, it definitely drops off. But if you if you kind of look at Missouri as a whole or that that area and including Illinois, which is just right across the Mississippi River, you can find reports that have continued on all through the years. Wow. In terms of the book, where can people get hold of it? Well, um, all the links to my stuff at my website, lyleblackburn.com. And of course, my books are available on Amazon and they come in paperback and ebook formats. Um, you can even get hardbacks to some of the older books. So yeah, just uh, just check my site at lyleblackburn.com and that'll give you links to all the films I've been in and, um, and uh, the books. And if you have Amazon Prime, you can view quite a bit of our Small Town Monsters catalog through that as well. And what have you got coming up in the future? Have you got anything on the boil at the moment? Uh, yeah, uh, we're actually about to film a Momo 
movie, a documentary uh, in about eight days. I'm supposed to start filming. It will kind of follow the the book and add to it visually. So we're going to do that, and that'll be out in October. I'm kind of always working on a book of some sort, fielding reports and and trying to figure out what to do. So I'm kind of figure out what book and what direction to go next. So there's always something in work. It's funny because when you were talking about the fact that the local law enforcement organized a posse, the first thing that came into my head was, this would make an awesome movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could see them all sort of getting together and, and sort of going out and that whole small town sort of, camaraderie if you like they're more working together to try and protect the small town you know i think that's going to be absolutely amazing and i certainly recommend the book it's called again momo the strange case of the missouri monster Uh, i know lyle i really wanted to speak to you about this book because you're well thought of in this in this field so it, it was really important to me that we got you on the show to talk about this and and to find out what you're up to. So thank you very much once again for being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Well, I just want to say, Bella, that you got that Chewbacca thing wrong. I don't care. You were acting like I was kind of stupid for asking it, and I wasn't the only person ever asked it, so there. No, okay, fair enough. You're not the only stupid person in the world. No, I don't. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, guys, I've got to tell you something that Bella said the other day, which is absolutely hysterical, and I'm sure she's going to try and interrupt me when I tell you this, but you've got to hear it. So... <laughs> I'm going to have trouble with this. You can't laugh before you even tell. No, I know what's coming because I just told myself. Yeah, yeah. We have a place in Somerset in the UK, a network of caves that you can go and visit, and it's called Wookie Hole. (laughs) (laughs) We were travelling back from London. (laughs) We were travelling back from London the other day, and we... Pulled into a services, what we call a services here. You'd call a rest stop. Is that right? Yeah. And there's loads of shops and everything. But they've always got these kind of stands with all the local attractions in leaflets so that you can decide what it is that you want to go and visit. And so there's a leaflet there for Wookiee Hole. And Bella said, and I quote, I'd like to see a Wookiee's Hole. <laughs> At which point I had to describe to her that it wasn't actually a Wookiee's hole. <laughs> Shut up. I knew. Uh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that was a cave on the front, not an actual Wookiee's hole. <laughs> I don't think they're that big in real life. Not that they are real Wookiees. <laughs> yeah, just keep talking. Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening to today's show. Really do appreciate it. Make sure you check out Lyle Blackburn's book. Zuh. (laughs) Make sure you check out Lyle Blackburn and all of the work that he does. I'm sure you will not be disappointed. If you want to catch any of our shows, as you know, you can do so via the website, wackywonderful.co.uk, and also on iTunes, Spotify, and everything else. If you could do a little favour for us, I'd appreciate it. If you could share our podcasts on facebook or write a review for us that would be absolutely fantastic a good one a good one would be nice (laughs) it means that we can reach more people and the more people we reach the more listeners we get the easier it is then to get the good guests on like lyle so that we can obviously impress you with some more interesting tales and stories that are most definitely weird weird, wacky wacky and and wonderful wonderful. bye (laughs) (laughs) A little laugh at the end. (laughs)